Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Songwriters on Process podcast. My name is Benno Papari, and since 2010, I've run the Songwriters on Process website, where you can find more than 200 conversations with songwriters about the creative process. I'm not here to talk about tour stories, band drama, how a band got its name, or favorite foods. My goal is to treat songwriters as writers, plain and simple. This is an intelligent conversation about the writing process between two writers. And today's episode is with Jenny Owen Youngs. Jenny had me at shitty first drafts. I have to say, uh, I think it was about five or 10 minutes into the, into the interview. Uh, if you could see me, it's obviously a podcast and you can't. You could see my glee, my excitement when she mentioned it. Now, shitty first drafts is an essay by the novelist Anne Lamott. Some of you may know it. If you haven't, please check it out. It's from her book, Bird by Bird. And uh, when I was a professor, I would, always, I would always have my students read shitty first drafts because I'm such a strong proponent of shitty first drafts. Uh, basically, it's the idea that whatever you write, whatever you create should be shitty. At first, it should be atrocious. We should not be striving for perfection or anything rem- remotely close to that. Uh, in those first drafts, it needs to be awful. If you read interviews with writers, they'll tell you the same thing. Uh, you know, don't revise as you write. Uh, write multiple drafts. It's actually faster. It'll turn out better writing. But the shitty first draft is key. And so we spent a lot of time talking about our love for the essay first, uh, but just how we agree with that. Um, again, it's from Anne Lamott, L-A-M-O-T-T. Uh, look online, you can probably find it, but it's a, um, uh, it's really a landmark essay. Not maybe landmark is a strong term. It's not like she, she invented that idea, but just that idea that the first draft has to be awful. And I have heard that from a lot of songwriters as well, but to hear a songwriter mention that essay just made my day. So Jenny, thank you very much for that. Um, I should also mention that uh, Jenny has a new album out, or I should say out next month, uh, Avalanche, out September 22nd on um, September 22nd on Yep Rock Records, and it is great. A uh, fantastic album. I did, uh, I've been listening to it. It's great. Um, she is also, I don't know how she does this, she is a parent and also has not one, not two, but three podcasts, one called Buffering um, it is a rewatch adventure. I'm reading this from her site, encompassing buffering the vampire slayer, the X files and doom coming. Um, so she and her co-host Kristen Russo, uh, talk about those shows. Also Veronica Mars investigations, where she talks about the show Veronica Mars and then into the Jenny versus the third one talking about, uh, the creative process. Um, but this was a great conversation. I enjoyed this. I'm a fan of her music, but uh, as a parent also, I can appreciate how difficult it is to create when uh, you're a parent and finding time. But ironically, being a parent makes you more disciplined because you have little time and such little time that's your own. Um, and Shana Cleveland told me uh, about a month or two ago, what did she say? Something about the worst thing is having all the, the most pressure is having all the time in the world. And when you're a parent and you have no time, uh, it can actually make you more efficient. So we talked a lot about the, not just the joys of parenting, but also just what it's like to be a full-time parent, full-time artist. And the, 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 
difficulty um, in finding the time to create. So I loved this conversation and uh, take a listen. Here is my interview with Jenny Owen Youngs. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, I guess I'll start by asking you this. Are you an everyday type of writer or just a writer when you feel like the mood strikes? Hmm. Uh, I think it kind of, for me, moves cyclically depending on what's going on because uh, I kind of have my hands in a lot of different projects and not all of them yeah. are musical. So depending <laughs> what deadlines are looming <laughs> most uh, closely on the horizon, um, I may be a writer every day or I might go, you know, for some slabs of time uh, where it's to the side um, or where I'm writing something that's not music. Um, yeah. Um, I feel like there have definitely been years of my life where I was writing, you know, most weekdays, uh, either for myself or in writing sessions uh, with other writers. Um, right now, I'm in the middle of writing a book. So that's my <laughs> that's my main writing focus at this exact moment in time. Uh, and books, man, they're so much longer than songs. <laughs> I don't know how people do it. Uh, it's like I have a really hard time figuring out. It's just like so the scope is just like so vast. I'm like, where am I? Uh, three and a half minutes is like such an ideal length for a story, you know? So I here's yeah. And here's what I found. So when I wrote my <clears throat> excuse me, I was writing my dissertation for my Ph.D. You know, the thought of that was, oh, my gosh, you know, 300 pages, whatever, how can I do that? And that's why a lot of people don't finish those because it's so daunting. So I bought a book by, uh, it was a, she's an education uh, professor somewhere. Um, I think her last name is Bolker. And um, the book was called Your Dissertation on 15 Minutes a Day. And mm -hmm. the idea behind that, and it's not like a new agey type of thing, but if I say to you, write me, write me 300 pages in a year, you're going to say, I'm not going to do that. But if I say, can you write 10 pages a week for 30 weeks? That's much more manageable. Oh, yeah. And I think that's a better way to look at it than saying, like you were saying, kind of daunting. Um, but I think that was an important, that changed the game for me because it was like, well, yeah. I can do that. That's not a problem. Um, so do you... Um, uh, when it first of all, what's the book? If you don't have to share if you don't want to, but what's the know. book? I'm I'm happy to. Um, uh, in <laughs> in my other life, uh, I make a podcast. Right? I yeah, I know. Called uh, Buffering the Vampire Slayer for six years, and um, my co-host and I are currently writing a book that is sort of like a braid of um, Buffy the show buffering the podcast and our relationship because when we started the podcast we were married and then we got divorced and then we kept making the podcast somehow and it's sort of like those three uh lines through time kind of like playing off of each other and the sort of like weird kind of spooky intersections between like what was going on in the show at the same time that you know like buffy and angel were breaking up and we were getting divorced and you know yeah whether or not you know who Buffy and Angel are, uh, trust me, you know, it's an epic love story for the ages. Right, right, right. So with that book, then, are you, how are you managing that? Are you doing a certain number of pages a day, certain number of words, or how are you becoming, how how, how is that discipline uh, different than, let's say, being a songwriter? I guess 
I guess more generally, what is that process like for you as a, as a book writer, as far as those deadlines? Uh, well, I think like we've tried a variety of, um, schemes and tricks <laughs> to get ourselves into writing the book. And, uh, the thing that we've kind of settled into in the last couple of, of weeks is like rough draft of a chapter per week. So like, you know, we're on zoom just like this together writing, you know, something like 12 hours a week and just kind of like kicking it back and forth and like getting through the chapter, uh, digging into the, um, bird by bird, like shitty first drafts kind of deal. My favorite when I was a professor, that was mandatory reading for my students. Yeah. You're, oh gosh, someone I interviewed within the past month also mentioned the essay, but I forgot who it was. So I, yeah. So tell people why any writer of any stripe should read that essay. Anne Lamott, by the way, the author. Yeah. She's unbelievable. Like the whole book is just incredible and will make the best thing about it is that it will make you feel like writing is something that you actually can do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she's all about breaking things down. Like you were talking about into like sort of bite size, like conceivable chunks that like can actually fit inside your brain versus like 300 pages. Ah, uh, and she's also like uh, really tuned in to sort of like just get the words on the paper, uh, do what you have to do to just get yourself writing and don't worry about, you know, what the first draft looks like. She she has this like hilarious bit about how she used to do these like um, restaurant critic articles. And she was she every single time she wrote one, she would write the first draft and then panic for, you know, like be just like sick to her stomach for the number of days that it took her to get from draft one to draft two, because she would just be like having these fantasies of dying and then people reading her first draft after she died and then realizing that she was a a talentless hack, you know? Uh, I feel like something that's like super valuable uh, that she brings to the creative table is just like your first draft is not like your soul necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's just a step on come forward. Yeah. And, and when I write, you know, I'm a prose writer, not a songwriter, but I do a lot of freelance writing. And I think the mis- I, I, I don't think I have any right knowing what the document's supposed to look like when I start. So, mm-hmm. and so I, I don't think I should, I don't think I should know that. So I start, first of all, I start writing wherever the hell I have the most to say. Um, and, and if that's, but I think a lot of times ruts happened happen not because people don't know what to say but because they don't know where to begin and they think i've got all that stuff i want to say later on but i can't say it yet because i've written this part and so you sit there but i find that if i just start going that momentum keeps me moving so uh and i that's so that's my takeaway is that kind of shitty first drafts but my first drafts are so bad uh that you know um my kids are mystified that i even went to college because they'll pass by and they'll be like, you know, dad, like, what are you doing? Like who writes like that? I, I don't pay t- I mean, mine, mine are so bad. I don't pay attention to spelling, uh, punctuation. I mean, I don't, I, I have to turn off spell check as almost all of the words. I find that even if I stop to correct a word, it interrupts my momentum. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like any way that you can cultivate momentum, like however you can get there, like just, stay laser focused on that because the worst thing in the world is 
getting tripped up. Get, you slow down and uh, you can just lose it all together. But if you can just keep moving like a shark, you know, just push, 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 uh, you'll eventually get. Um, she has she has another part of one of the the essays in the book where she talks about that she'll write, you know, six pages in a day and they're all garbage, except there's yeah. like one paragraph that she got to that actually feels like something and that she loves it and and that like all of her day's writing was worth it to get to that, yeah. that one small gem that she can now polish and recontextualize and whatever and that's something that i think about all the time in songwriting sessions because you get into a songwriting session and it's like you know it's just like you have to like flip a switch and be vulnerable and like cultivate a space that encourages other people to be vulnerable and you know it's like it's not comfortable and it's not natural and you have to like develop a way to access that part of yourself uh at the drop of a hat which is which is not easy and it, it's it's not easy to say ideas in a room with somebody you just met uh who you know you don't know if they're gonna get it you don't know if you're on the same wavelength as them or whatever and I feel like that's like a big obstacle, or at least it was for me when I started writing. I was like, I don't want to say the dumb thing. But then I started to realize sometimes somebody says a thing that's not the thing, but that sparks something in somebody else's brain that they never would have gotten to that becomes the thing. So like you're holding, you know, you're not being, you're not serving the room, the writing room um, in that collaborative space the best that you can, unless you are being brave and saying the thing that might kind of suck, but it might lead somewhere. And I've had songwriters tell me recently a few times that they mishear a lyric. And when they mishear the lyric, that actually, that's actually better for them because it turns into something better. Dude, that happens a freaky amount. It's totally wild how often a misheard lyric gets into the final draft of a song in a session. It's nuts. It doesn't make any sense, but it's a tremendous thing. Yeah. Uh, do you, uh, do you journal at all? I aspire to journal. <laughs> I like, um, you know, every year, you know, in January, I'm like time to get a new moleskin. I'm going to get this moleskin and I'm going to write down all my profound thoughts. And then, you know, the next January comes around and I'm like, guess I'm just gonna start last year's moleskin this year. I feel like I love the sensation of writing on paper. I, mm, yeah, it feels great. But from a practical standpoint, I feel like the closest thing that I end up doing on a regular basis that like gets anywhere near journaling is like notes in my phone, which uh, aesthetically, yuck, but practically it works. It's always with me, you know, it's searchable. I have a lot, a lot of questions on this. So I do find that songwriters, you mentioned the feel of the, of the paper. Hmm. Um, I do find that songwriters can be very particular to if they are writing uh, with a pen or a pencil, the brand, the color of ink. Oh, yeah. um, I interviewed a couple of the guys in Deer Tick actually yesterday. Hmm. And John McCauley showed me his, I think, number two Ticonderoga pencil that okay. he writes with and his blue notebook. And, you know, that goes to the ritual. But I'm curious, does that, let's talk about, it sounds like you might prefer pen and paper rather than phone, right? Hmm. Or I pencil mean, and paper. Yeah, that like uh, pen and paper is in my heart. 
but alas, phone is in my hand. But when I, whenever I can, and I feel like I've gotten so neurotic and detailed in my like to-do list making, which I do on paper, that it has sort of like, I'm just like desperately doing that in place of uh, journaling. I'm like, ah, getting my pen and paper fix uh, any way that I can. But it's all about the papermate flare medium black um for my to-do lists i have like a whole color coding system if it's like jenny music or the podcast or other projects they all have their own assigned color but general writing black all the way uh moleskin great any lined paper like the narrower the rule the better the more Mm, satisfying why why Uh, i think that my brain wants just in case just in case wants like the maximum number of uh, lines in case I, you know, there's a verse and now I'm going to cross it out and rewrite it. And there's room for that or whatever. Uh, wh- uh, running out of room, too much song for the page. That would be a catastrophe. And, and yeah, I, now what about the, you know, what about all those voice fem- memos uh, or those ideas on their phone. Is there any organization at all to those? Oh, or yeah. None yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, when I'm being a good Jenny, they all start with either, you know, what they're for. If it's like a Jenny song idea, it's like J-O-I at the front. If it's um, for the podcast, I wrote a song for every single episode of Buffy. So if it was a Buffy song idea, it would start with Buff. Um, I was listening to your interview with joseph and heard one of the girls say that they use a particular emoji which i think is so smart and i might institute what a great idea i remember that yeah that was very cool so fast hot hot tip i'm thinking about it uh but then sometimes you know ultimate sadness i'm scrolling back through and i'm like oh the like voice recording you know 759 through 812 and i'm like ugh, that was a that was an irresponsible day, you know? But I find, though, that when I go through some of my, when I'm not mortified by the things that I've written, you know, 10 years ago, that I'll just go through and look for these things. And typically I'm mortified, but occasionally, you know, I'll think, wow, you know, back then that was a horrible thought, not horrible, but it was just a not good idea or a bad, but it could get me thinking about things Mm. back then. It was great, but I do find there's value even in looking through the discarded ideas, whether the song ideas in your case or anything like that. So do you find that you look through those that back then were, you know, they weren't good, but now they're actually, Hmm, might have some legs. Yeah. I think that like, um, I think that I try not to be, but I'm like a little bit of an idea hoarder, you know, where I'm like, yeah. oh, God, I keep all these ideas just in case one of them is the thing. But, you know, like occasionally a word that I'll have had in my mind as like a song title for like years. Finally, that song, you know, emerges. Yeah. Like, I, I think that. I think it's really about like if you're listening back to a bunch of things and like none of them spark anything, you're not like, oh, this makes me have an idea or whatever. Like it might be okay to let those things go. Um, one thing that I know more now than ever before in my life is that there will 
always be more ideas. The quality of those ideas, who can say? That's in the future. That's tomorrow's Jenny's problem. But ideas can continue to happen. I think like at some point, um, you know, after you, for me, after I'd made some songs, I'd made some recordings, then like the fear began. I was like, those exist, but nothing is like, I can't see into the future. So what if there's just like never anything? There's more. It's fine. It'll come. I I do hear that anxiety too from songwriters about how you know I'll never I'm never gonna write a song again. Uh you know that with an there's attitude a, like that, you're not right, exactly. But what about the idea that you know we you know I we talked about the you know having the pens and the pencils and stuff like that, but that the preciousness of the the preciousness, the preciousness of the process is inversely proportional to the anxiety. So in other words, or I guess I should say is proportional. So, mm. so the less precious you treat the process, then the less a- an- anxious you are about it. So if you're willing to say, I, I'm going to, you know, there's a piece of paper over there that's, you know, that's got this utility bill or something that I'm going to write lyrics on that often the more precious you treat it, the more ang- the more the more anxiety there is behind it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I totally see that. I feel like if you're like, I can only write a song when I'm sitting in this chair facing yeah. southeast, like looking out this window, and the sun is sinking in the sky. Uh, you're just like really limiting. <laughs> you're just like you're you've made a tight window for yourself to uh, yeah. create. Also, I think like. I think that there were definitely times, you know, earlier in my creative life where I was like, I can only write when I'm inspired. And then after mm-hmm. doing a ton of session songwriting, I'm like, no, I can I can write pretty much whenever. Uh, yeah. I don't have to be inspired. It's cool to get inspired. But I think like, I think that um, accepting that, that uh, you can get inspired or you can sit down to write and just see what happens you know like i think those are both ways to chase an idea um and sometimes an idea shows up and invites you to chase it and sometimes you have to like sit down and like come up with some ideas to chase that like don't just like magically spring into your mind even though it's so nice when that happens I will say broadly that the songwriters I've interviewed have been around you know I've interviewed people like John Oates from Holland Oates and have been around for you know 40 plus years, those are the people who say, you know, they write whenever they write every day or they don't wait for the, they don't wait for the muse. I mean, yeah. I just don't talk to songwriters who've been doing this for decades who say, yeah, I just wait for the muse to strike. It's, <laughs> you know, and I don't know if there's a connection there, but they seem to be doing something right. If they're, you know, if they're not waiting. Um, yeah. um, so, um, the ritual then it's funny you say that because i i you know i feel like there are times like for me at least if i'm i'm not at home right now but if i'm at home um like i write in one chair and i revise in another Mm. i have to separate that process um the closer i am to the writing process the more likely I am to miss things in the revision process. And I would always tell my students that, that if you're too close to the writing process, you know, I, I would tell them the worst revision process ever is to stare silently at the 
document on the screen. The opposite of that is reading out loud on hard copy, even though I can't justify it anymore with the world burning. But mm-hmm. there are things you can do to distance yourself from that because if you're too close, you're just going to miss things. Um, so for part of that, for me, for example, like I said, that involves writing one share, revising in another. Yeah. On the other hand, I can see what you're saying that that makes it too precious that I think, oh, I'm not in that share. How well will I do? But at least I know that's where it works. So I'm curious. Yeah. What do you have? Is there a ritual to your process as far as whether it's revision or writing? And it could be things like time of day, hmm. uh, you know, favorite chair, favorite room, things like that. I really like, I really like reading out loud when I'm revising, um, yeah. at least in the prose department, you know, um, uh, I think like a place that I love to revise music is in the shower. And mm, also, yeah. I, I feel like, um, that is a, that is a weird spot where, where if an idea is going to just like materialize from the ether, it's usually in the shower. And also I find it a great place. Cause I'm like, <laughs> alone and i have no distractions you know to just kind of like go over a melody or go over a lyric in in my head or preferably out loud and kind of just like sand there um it's just like a nice little isolation chamber my the shower in this house is so weird it has like big sort of like cryogenic freeze tank vibes you know so there's that might have something to do with it too it might just feel a little sci-fi in there which helps i don't know see now we can get into whether it's the, because I, there was an article in the washington post about a year ago uh, actually about why we get our best ideas in the shower mm. um and and but i've so i've heard shower let's try to let's try to especially because you live near the water oh yeah uh, we, let's break this down is it the shower element and the fact that you're you're kind of by yourself or i've heard a lot of songwriters say it's the water so they oh, get yeah. ideas while swimming. Yep. Uh, and there's, so I don't know. I mean, there's a long list also of writers, you know, who who have gotten great ideas writing on the sea. I don't know. What do you think yeah, about yeah. that? I've, I recently actually did a little Googling um, about like the effect of just water on our bodies and brains and yeah. emotional state and stuff. And there was, there were just like a lot of, I mean, it's the internet and it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't uh, a scientific paper of any kind, but it felt very compelling when I was, you know, like um, the, the calming nature and like, there's something about some kind of like biological thing. I'm doing a bad job remembering the detail. Yeah. But just trust me. Yeah. (laughs) Listener. uh, Water is good for your brain. Yeah. Um, oh, Liz Fair told me, I think nothing like a good, I remember the quote, nothing like a good, uh, backstroke, I think where she gets ideas while she's swimming. <laughs> uh, leave it to Liz to like get the stroke in there. <laughs> like, yeah, it was definitely the stroke. I have to go, Thanks. I have to go back and it was definitely a, a specific stroke that she mentioned. Amazing. Um, but again, I guess my point is that if you know that works, why not do those things? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, it can limit you because if that's if you think you have to rely on it, it becomes this crutch. Yeah, I think just like 
taking advantage of like what seems to work for you and like being open to the possibility that that won't always be available but like why not give it a shot if you're near yeah you're near water right now get a little closer yeah see if anything happens yeah is there a time of day that you're the most effective i think well i've got this new six-month-old roommate you know oh right uh, so, so I find that anytime before 5 p.m., my brain is less mush-like. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of a morning person anyway. I was a morning person before I became a parent. I just feel like a little clearer. I've never been yeah. one to like, stay up all night writing songs, people. Yeah. Um, sounds cool. Sounds romantic. But... uh it's never been me well uh, when you have a six-month-old i mean the clock is there even a clock anymore it doesn't even matter i mean what is time yeah <laughs> uh yeah right now it's like you know i'm i'm super lucky because my my wife is uh we both work from home essentially and she's kind of like the primary care and then i do the overnights overnight duty is currently less taxing than it was like three months ago you know when right. things were totally nuts um but but even though you know she's doing day coverage i'm still you know always on call right anything could happen catastrophe could strike uh a crying fit could begin that we must determine the source of immediately so i'm always like a little bit on edge like can i finish this idea can i complete this task can i do this thing before the next sort of like uh, commercial break in my day occurs. So I learned that about myself and I deliberately incorporate false deadlines into my routine. So we live outside of DC and I go to New York a lot for work. So, and, and I, so, and, and I'll, so what I'll do at home is I'll say, okay, um, if I have a phone call like for work at 12, I won't start writing until 11. Now what I'm writing has nothing to do with the phone call, but it's still a hard stop. And I learned that about myself because the train ride from DC to New York is like two hours and 45 minutes. I will get more done in those two hours and 45 minutes than if I sat here because I know I have to put my laptop away. And, and so that I can get so much more stuff done if I know I have to stop. And I feel like that's something as a new parent, if you know, oh, the baby's down, I've got a half hour, you'll get more done in that half hour than if you just said, okay, got a half hour, how much can you do? So and I guess that's a long way, long way of me saying that I found that being a parent made me a lot more disciplined. Um, and as some songwriter Shana Cleveland told me recently, I think she said all the all the time in the world is 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 too much pressure. Yes, correct. <laughs> that is accurate. Yeah, and yeah. babies are like the ultimate uh, not so false deadlines. <laughs> like, yeah. The, um. Uh, all the extraneous nonsense is like trimmed away in an instant because you are just desperately trying to survive and also keep somebody else who's totally helpless alive. So like yeah. that's obviously the most important thing going on. A song? Who cares about right, song? Right. So you really got to just like be as efficient as possible. It's amazing what it does. It may, yeah. You realize how much you can get done if you have no choice. Yes. Yeah, totally. Um, all my friends who became parents before me were always like, 
I can't believe I ever thought I was, I can't believe I ever thought I was busy before now. And I was like, that will not be me. I can't believe I ever thought I was <laughs> busy before. What? Right, right, uh, right. It's, it's just, it's just a completely different world. Yeah. <laughs> on the side of the line. So time, obviously time of day, time of day, you'll do it when you can, but yeah. what about uh, room? I mean, again, like for me, rooms, some rooms are better than others, even the chair I like. So you can call that superstition. You can call it a ritual, but are those things important to you at all? I think, um, so I'm talking to you from, uh, my little home studio setup, Right. And, um, I do all my sessions from here and, and I do a lot of sort of like administrative work in here and, and tape podcasts in here. And it's very easy to, you know, just like do the rest of everything in here. But I find that if I just like go downstairs to the kitchen table, mm -hmm. my, my like sort of administrative uh, productivity just like cranks up. It's just like, I think it's like good for me at least to have my, my like body in different settings, even if it's not, you know, I'm less attached to like a specific chair and more attached to just like, I got to move. I got to go somewhere else. Before uh, before we got on this call, I left the house to go to the library, even though I only have like 40 minutes to sit there because I knew that if I sat at a weird table that I don't usually sit at that, you know, everything else would just kind of like fall away and I would be able to focus more readily on the editing that I had to do, you know? Um, so that's it for me, I think, just sort of like knowing when to get up and move somewhere else. <laughs> So are you aware, I mean, I, I love these discussions because I like, I am very aware of that, but are you aware, like before we have this conversation, were you aware of those things of kind of the parameters of where you're the most effective? Yeah. It's something that okay. I, that I, I think have, have thought about a lot. Um, the last like handful of years, but especially the last six months, I'm like, <laughs> okay. Anything, anything we can do to tighten up the, these bolts on this machine. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely, I'm always looking for like a new system or like a refinement to be like even more effective or whatever. Yeah. Um, mm. What about the song ideas that come to you? I, I, you know, I love discussions of song ideas that come to us when we're doing monotonous activities, things that turn the conscious brain off. Mm -hmm. um, and I've had songwriters tell me vacuuming, gardening, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, you know, anything monotonous that requires no brain power whatsoever, that allows the ideas to come. So how often has that happened to you in those situations? Oh, yeah. All, all the time. Um washing dishes, uh, washing bottles, something that I now spend an unholy amount of time doing every week, uh, shower again. And there's a, wow, this kind of incorporates like a bunch of things. Um, there is a path very close to my house that kind of like winds along the salt Creek. So it's like the sort of like monotonous walking, you know, just like bop, 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 and the water is there being water doing its watery thing you know um that i think might be like the that and like dishes are like the number number one and two they might be tied for first place just like getting into a thing where my body is doing a thing that i like don't have to think about i have 
thankfully become pretty good at walking. Uh, so it doesn't require a lot from me um, and my CPU. Uh, and that really, I love, I love, I spent, and if I could get into the woods, if I could get a little shady coverage, you know, uh, trees are not water, but they do something too, I find. Um, yeah, there was an article in the Post recently, Washington Post again, about actually exactly what we were talking about. And that is um, the effect that walking in nature has versus walking like in more urban environments or things like that. But I, the number of writers I've read about who get song and songwriters too, who get, who get song ideas on walks, even if they mimic sometimes the songs mimic the cadence of the walk that they're on. Gosh, the first interview I ever did for this site was Adam Turla from Murder by Death. And um, he told me that he wrote a song. He, uh, one of the albums he wrote was on a hike and he found that the the song mimicked the cadence of the hike he was on that day. Uh, and I thought that was so cool. Um, but I do, but, but I think there's value, right. And, and that kind of, and, and there was a great, there's a great book called, um, the friendship by Adam Sisman. And it was about the friendship between Wordsworth and Coleridge, the two romantic poets. Mm-hmm. And they estimate, they estimate Wordsworth walked a hundred thousand miles in his life, which I guess back then there was nothing else to do, but that's still like, if you do the calculations, that's an insane amount of walking every yeah. day but he composed all of almost his poems on walks and he would, I don't know how he did this, but he would revise them on walks too. And he wouldn't come back until he had finished them in his mind. Um, Yeah. Uh, That's just amazing. But, but I get tons of ideas on walks running uh, and there's a lot of, you know, the, the role of movement to that process as well is super important. For sure. I love hearing about people not just composing, but editing entire poems in their minds. I feel like we're so overburdened with like tools. Yeah. Like, uh, I don't know if anybody's, anybody's doing any studies on this, but surely like, uh, the human memory is like shrinking, deteriorating over time, like across the board. Right. Yeah. Accelerating with social media. I'm sure. Yeah. I I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh my God. Why why bother to re- be able to remember anything that's longer than 140 characters? I mean, uh, you know, it it's again, I think I've heard this from a lot of people uh it, you know, how much the the impact, the negative impact the social media has uh, and I I only mean the practical reason of it that if you're if you're constantly on your phone yeah. You're not having experiences. And so it's actually, I'm not talking about, you know, any other bigger issue other than the practical idea that how can you, what can you, if you're just spending, if you're in this echo chamber and your whole writing experience should be about, your whole writing should be about experiences you're having. If you're not having experiences, what are you writing about? Yeah. Yeah. There's like that aspect. And there's also like, I feel like being bored is just something that it's (laughs) i feel like people are less bored now than ever because like they Mm -hmm. don't have to be bored but i feel like an argument could be made that boredom is actually like good (laughs) because it leaves you know when your mind is sort of like idle that's when things can like really pop off in there you know uh you gotta like give yourself space 
you have to a have experiences and then b have the kind of like downtime that's i mean doing session writing like every day eventually became too much because i was like i don't my brain my brain yeah many ideas uh the density of ideas just like push 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 it became too much and it was having kind of like a negative impact on my ability to generate ideas because i needed that kind of like you know ebb and flow the wax and wane whatever the peaks and valleys just like stuff and then nothing and stuff and nothing i hate to bring the guy up because he he uh you know he doesn't have the best reputation anymore but the um scott adams the creative dilbert remember he was in the mm. uh you know like six months ago he did did that interview where he said some really horrible things um but he wrote an article in the wall street journal it must have been 10 years ago exactly what you're saying and he said artists he said you've got to be bored You've got to make yourself bored. And that's exactly what you're saying is if you're not bored, how, when do you have the space to come up with ideas? But like you were saying, it's we feel like that's a bad thing. And I find that it, it's knowing that makes it to me, makes it much more comforting. comforting. It gives you it gives you permission to sit there and do nothing. Because, you know, that even I always believe, right, that something's going on up there, even if I'm not consciously thinking about it, giving your brain that time to rest, things are working themselves out, right? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I always think about like how if I'm trying to like master like a difficult guitar part, how I'll like play it over and over and over again and be like, ah, like, you know, I'll like screw up every, you know, every time I play it, I'll screw up in a different place. And I'm just like ready to smash the guitar and just call it a day for music. Then I will go to sleep. My brain will do amazing Tetris. I will wake up in the morning and I'll be able to play the part. Like it doesn't, it shouldn't make sense, you know, but it does. And like, I feel like our brains do that with ideas too. Running in the background, uh, just like putting things in their place or making space so that an idea can actually have somewhere to be, you know? Amazing you say that because I just had this conversation today with someone mm. um, that I find that when I finish something in the morning, a piece of writing, and I look at it later that day, it's so precious to me. I cannot pry any words from that document. Like I cannot, as hard as I try, those words are still too close to me. I'm not ready to give any of them up because that thing is perfect. But if I finish at night, wake up the next morning. Ah. I cut like it's nobody's business. Those <laughs> words fly off the page that if I, it's crazy what sleep, that's exactly what sleep does to me is that again, it's just, it give. I don't know what it is, but it, it lets you reset. And it's, and again, I know that. So I will, I just know that if, you know, if I can't squeeze anything out of it that night, when I wake up the next morning, it is not a problem. Yeah. 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 I think that in Stephen King's book about writing, he talks about, I finish a manuscript and then I put it in a drawer for six months. Yeah, and, that would be great. And then you take it out and then, wow, imagine yeah. the cuts you could make then. Yeah, right. Uh, just like right. giving yourself that space, whether it's like overnight or it's just like a big expanse of time, like just affords you clarity and also just gives your brain the opportunity to do its natural processing thing 
Yeah. I don't know what it is, but it works. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question. So I do find that songwriters are voracious readers or consumers of, I know obviously you watch television, but what about other types of, how voracious are you of a reader? We'll start with that. I know that's yeah. a, mm-hmm. by using the word voracious, clearly I'm meaning it to go a certain way. I just realized that maybe that's not the best word to use because oh my God, we're not voracious at all. But anyway, go ahead. Oh, I'm, I'm very hungry to read, but alas, uh, r- rarely does a meal get served at this exact moment in my life. Uh, I've read, you know, um, what to expect when you're expecting. <laughs> I'm, right now I'm in the middle of what to expect the first year. You know, those are my main tomes. I even, I mean, it's just been a, you know, it's been a wild six months where uh, less grist is going into the mill. I like. I have a, you know, a folder at my local comic book shop where like the books that I'm currently reading, like they pull an issue for me every month. And for the last six months, all of those titles, I can't even get through, you know, a 30 page comic book. I just have like a stack of comics I haven't even read. Generally, I love to read and I um, will read as much as as time allows. Um, but, But right now, at this exact moment in time. It is tricky. It is tricky. I'm wondering if there I I do listen to a lot of podcasts and I'm like is is now the time in my life where I'm going to make the the leap to audiobooks? Is this what has to happen? I don't know. I you know, I I'm not it's not me being a luddite because I like I'm much more I'm I'm very pro Kindle. I have no romantic I spent years in the stacks for my PhD. I have no romantic connection to the feel of the book, mm. the smell. I don't get that at all. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't get the the whole, oh, I need to feel the page and and you know and and uh, and, and 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 smell the paper. With audiobooks, though, I, I just feel like you've got to see the words on the page uh to appreciate like the language, the good language. If it's listen, there's certain audiobooks that are fine. That's not the issue. I think with literature, if we're talking about quality of writing. There's something about seeing the words on the page and seeing how they are with the words around them and those rhetorical devices. I don't think you get that with audiobooks. With I'm talking about like, you know, the quality writing. Yeah, I feel like there's also just like um it's such a roll of the dice, maybe, for like the way that you whatever the voices that you create while you're reading a book physically. Yeah. Like, there is a person's voice creating an audiobook, right? And you might yeah. be familiar with that person's voice and you might have like all these yeah. associations. Like, I, I just wonder how much that, it, not that, I mean, it sounds fun. And I'm sure, I'm confident that there are many people who are amazing audiobook performers, deliverers, readers. Uh, but I do, I do, <laughs> as an audiobook virgin, I am really curious. Well, actually... I have listened to a couple Harry Potter books uh, that I guess, is it Stephen Fry? I feel like who's the guy who does all the Harry Potter books. I don't know. Uh, He's like really, you know, he's really a performer. Yeah. Uh, Handling voices and building a whole world. But that's, you know, also just like a a very specific tone, you know? Yeah. Very specific kind of book. Um, We're really getting to the bottom of things here. I feel like. 
So the only one that I feel like I had to read, I had to listen to the audiobook was when mm-hmm. I listened to Bruce Springsteen's memoir. You, you got to listen to the boss read his own memoir. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, but no other voice works for that at all. Like that was one where I thought it would be a crime for anyone else to read this. That's I listened to uh, a like first hundred years of first hundred years of Hollywood podcast called You Must Remember This, which I think is like so incredible. And it frequently excerpts uh, little snippets of various uh, memoir audiobooks. And they're almost always read by the person who wrote, you know, Sharon Stone or whoever. And hearing somebody read their own memoir in their own voice, that's like, that feels right. I feel great about that. And that's it for the latest episode of Songwriters on Process. Don't forget, you can find all of my interviews with over 200 songwriters on my Songwriters on Process website, at songwritersonprocess.com, going all the way back to 2010. You can read them, watch them, or listen to them. So until next time, thanks for listening. 